This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org ut. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. No matter who you are, or what you believe, or, or why you're here, or what you've done, I want to welcome you to RUF. So what is RUF? Well, RUF is a community of students, and we're learning how to love. We're learning how to, to love God, and learning how to love our friends, and we're learning how to love even this campus, and this university, because we believe that God has first loved us. And so this is what we do. Uh, We meet in this room on Wednesday nights, and we meet in small groups throughout the week, and we meet one-on-one for lunch, for coffee, in in order to remind one another of God's love for us, so that we might rest in his love, and then ultimately reflect his love out into the world. And so what I want you to do tonight is to be reminded of God's love for you, and and to rest in that love. And in in order to do that, this semester largely, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark together, and what we're seeing all semester is that Christianity is not advice. It is news. And specifically, it is news about a king. It is news about about the survival of a king assuming his throne in the world. And so we're calling our Mark series Following the King, because each and every Wednesday night, we will be looking together at Mark and asking, who is this king that has arrived on the stage? And what might it look like for me to follow him? And tonight, I want us to see that this king moves towards us. He moves towards us. Point one, he moves towards places of sin. And then second, he moves toward places of suffering. So he moves towards sinners, and he moves towards places of suffering. Point one, moves toward our sin. So I want to tell her now that Taylor Swift has a new album coming out. And I also don't know if you know the year she was born. It was 1989. And that was also the year I was born, not that you care. Then now you know how old I am, you can do the math. Uh, But in February of 1989, uh, Princess Diana, the most famous woman in the world at the time, Nicholas, what we got? You're good. All right, we're just going to keep going. Those of you in the back that were sleeping, you're waiting now. So in February of 1989, Princess Diana, she's the most famous woman in the world, and she goes to a hospital in New York City in Harlem. And, and you have to understand that in 1989, the, the AIDS epidemic was still raging all over the world. Uh, <laughs> this isn't distracting at all. The AIDS, AIDS epidemic was raging all over the world. And, and, and it was still falsely believed at the time that you could actually contract AIDS just by touching or being around someone with, with the disease. And yet Princess Diana uh, flies to New York City, and she goes straight to this hospital in Harlem. And she takes the elevator straight up to, to the floor for the pediatric AIDS clinic. And she kneels down immediately before a seven-year-old boy with AIDS and gives him a hug. And you can imagine the looks on the faces, I mean, of her entourage and all the people who are around her, like, like, like trying to stop her and wondering, like, is she going to get sick? Is she going to die? What is going to happen? Why, why did you do that? 
And turning to our passage in Mark tonight, we see that the very first thing Jesus does in his public ministry is equally shocking and scandalous. He gets baptized. We see this in verse 9, where, where Jesus goes out to get baptized by John, and John is confused and angry. I mean, look at the parentheses there. These are in the Gospel of Matthew, where we see that John tries very hard to, to, to stop and prevent Jesus from getting baptized. He says, do you get baptized by me? No. Now, the question is why? I mean, why is John so mad here? And, and why is Jesus getting baptized so scandalous? And so to answer this question, we, we need to know more about baptism. We need to know more about John. So let's start with John. Uh, in verse 6, we see that John is a pretty weird guy. Okay? Uh, he lives out in the country. He wears weird clothes. He eats weird food. And he would not have gotten a bid to your super cool fraternity. Okay? Let's just be honest. But John does all these weird things for a reason. Because John is trying to get the people's attention. He, he is trying to wake them up. And he is telling them, it is time for, for you to repent and to change. We see this in verse 4, where it says, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance. What does that mean? Well, repentance, to repent, again, is to wake up. It is to say, I've been living in the dark, and the sun has come up. I've been walking in the wrong direction, and I need to turn around and begin walking in a different one. That's repentance. And baptism was a symbol of repentance. Uh, to get baptized by John in the Jordan River was to say, I'm a sinner, and I need to change, and I need to be washed and cleaned. And so that is why John is so confused and so upset when the king, the, the Messiah, this man who everyone has been waiting on, Jesus, God himself, this man who literally cannot sin, goes out into the waters and kneels before John and says, I want you to treat me like everyone else. I want you to treat me as if I'm a sinner. Baptize me. I mean, do we see how ridiculous this is? I mean, I mean, Jesus doesn't need to be washed or cleaned in any way. He's never done a bad thing. He never will do a bad thing. He doesn't need to get baptized, and yet he wants to. Why? Because the king moves towards us. The king moves towards our sin. And here at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus wants to make it very clear why he has come. He has come to move straight towards sinners. And here's why this is so important. Because all of us, like John the Baptist, cannot wrap our heads around the idea of a God or of a king who would do something like this. Someone so mighty, John says, I'm, he's so wonderful and mighty, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. Someone this great would be this humble and would move towards sinners. And we can't imagine this, we can't wrap our head around this type of king for two reasons. First of all, all of our lives, we have been taught that, that religion and Christianity is about us moving. That it is about us moving. That it is about us moving from our sin and towards God. We repent, we get clean, we start doing the right things, we stop doing whatever it is we need to stop doing. We move. We move towards God. He doesn't move towards us. 
And the second reason, like John, we cannot imagine this type of king is because all of our lives we have imagined a God who does not run towards us in our sin, but runs away from us. We think, I, I, I mean, maybe I can get God to move toward me if first I move towards him. I mean, we imagine God sort of like, I don't, probably no one still watches American Idol, but Simon, the judge on American Idol, this was big when I was growing up. And, and Simon would sort of sit there and watch everyone perform and be like very unmoved and unimpressed, right? And yet then occasionally, if someone was really, really good, he would like smile. And that's how we imagine God. We think, if I really perform, and if I'm really good, and I like sing and dance and do tricks for God, maybe he'll look at me. And yet tonight, we see that all of this is wrong. We think religion is about being a good person and me moving towards God. Wrong. We think God moves towards me only when I first move towards him. Wrong. We think God runs away from me in my sin. Wrong. All of our life, we have only heard the message of John, who comes to the river saying, you need to move from sin and toward God. And it hears this king who comes to us saying, I have left God to move towards sinners. That's point one. The king moves towards sinners. But point two, I want us to also see that the king moves toward our suffering. He moves toward our suffering. And we see this in verse 12, skipping down the passage, where Jesus moves immediately from the waters of baptism out into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. And wilderness in the Bible always represents suffering. When we look at verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And I want to pause on that phrase for a second, uh, wild animals, because it's, it's a little strange and it's a little bizarre. And no one really knows what it means or why Mark includes it. But, but let me tell you what I think it means and why I think Mark includes it in our story tonight. Here's what I think. So it's important to remember that Mark was not written to us. But it was actually written to Christians who lived a really long time ago, uh, about 20 years after Jesus' death. It was written to the church, to Christians that were living in Rome, in Italy. And do you know what it was like to be a Christian in Rome during this time? It was not good. Uh, this Mark scholar named William Lane, he, here's the story he tells of what it was like to be a Christian in Rome in the years after Jesus' death. So it all begins with an emperor named Nero who, who wants to build a big palace. But looking out over Rome, he cannot find anywhere to build his palace. But, but kind of gazing off in the distance a little further, he does notice a couple of things. He notices first this area uh, around the racetrack at the time, the Circus Maximus, where, where there are all these shops. And all these shops are filled with all these little small and flammable things that could burn really easily. And then he notices the second thing. He says, uh, he sees that right by the shops, there are these slums. There are these slums where, where all the poor people live. Tens of thousands of poor people live here. And Nero thinks to himself, if I could just set everything on fire and empty that slum, then I would have room to build my palace. So he leaves the city, 
because that's what cowards do. He leaves the city and he orders these gangs of men to, to march into the shops, into the area around the racetrack, and to set everything on fire. But soon, uh, things do not go according to plan, and things begin to spin out of control, because, because the wind in Rome shifts directions, and, and it takes the flames beyond the shops and beyond the slums, and up the hill and into this district where all the rich and powerful politicians live. And eventually, actually, 10 of the 14 districts of Rome burn to the ground, and it takes two weeks to put out the fire. As you can imagine, people in Rome are not happy about this. I mean, their lives and their homes have been burned to the ground, and so Nero has to go into damage control. Uh, he gets the ashes carried and swept out of the city, he cleans the city, he builds some parks, he improves the streets, he lowers the price of food, but nothing that he does helps. Because everyone believes this rumor that has been going around that, that Nero is actually the one who is responsible for the fire. And so in order to suppress that rumor, uh, Nero needs a scapegoat. He needs someone to blame. And he finds a scapegoat, and he finds someone to blame, and this little group of people who is despised by everyone in the city called Christians. And so Nero arrests the Christians, he tortures them, he blames the fire on them, and then he executes them. He, he has them sewn inside the skins of deer, and then he unleashes dogs who have been starved to come and to tear them apart. At night, he has parties in his garden, and to provide light for the party, he hangs Christians on crosses and watches them burn. And so imagine again that you're a Christian in Rome. It is 20 or so years after Jesus' death, and this is your life. You are in the wilderness. I mean, you know friends and family who have been with wild animals and, and actually eaten by lions or were sewn inside the skins of deer. And then one Sunday morning, you're huddled together in the dark somewhere, and someone pulls out and reads to you the Gospel of Mark. And this is what you hear. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And so what in that moment do you hear? You hear that the king is with you. And he is with you in whatever you face and whatever you suffer. And, and, and I tell all this, I tell this really, actually, long story about the early Christians. Because I know that each of you has a story of suffering, too. I mean, each of you has, has a wilderness that you are walking through currently or that you have walked through. And each of you tonight has wild animals that you're fighting. I mean, I know for some of you it's anxiety. Uh, it's anxiety about school. It's anxiety about walking into social situations, maybe even rooms like this. There's anxiety about your future. I mean, for others of you, it's depression. I mean, life might for you feel really dark right now. It could be really, really hard to get out of bed. For others of you, it's addiction. And as I love to say, we're all addicted to something whether it's pleasure or, or pornography or some type of food or substance or to school or to work, everything has, everyone has something they can't stop doing. For some of you, it's eating disorders. Others of you, it's past trauma that you can't shake. For some of you, it's regret. Others of you, it's shame, broken families. Many of you have been betrayed by your friends. I mean, all of you have wild animals. I know that you do. And as we walk into this room tonight with our wild animals, I want you to hear Mark saying to you what he wrote to 
the early Christians in Rome, huddled in some small room in the dark. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and he was with the wild animals. Why? Because the king moves towards us. He moves toward our suffering, not away from us. Dark, dry, sad, lonely places. When Jesus begins his ministry, those are the first places he goes. And here's why this is important. Because in many of us, the story that we have been told and that we believe about God is that when we are in the wilderness, God is nowhere to be found. That, that when, we are in, when we are suffering, God has actually run away from us, not toward us. That, that he has hidden his face from us. And that we are very much on our own and must figure out our problems and how to get out of them. And Mark says no. The king moves towards us. So I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, couples get in fights sometimes, right? And uh, when Emily and I were engaged, we actually got into uh, a big fight, a big argument. And um, it was late one night, and, and after the fight, I've told some of you this story before, after this big fight, Emily got in her car and, and she drove home. And sitting there, alone, after the door closed, I very much thought that our engagement maybe was over. I didn't really know if I would ever see her again. I didn't know if we would ever get married. And the house, I remember, was very still, and it was very silent, and I was very afraid. And in that moment, I, I did not know what to do. I wanted to cry, and yet I was so afraid and I was so numb that like I couldn't cry. And so all I knew to do was pick up the phone and call my friend Matt. And some of you know my friend Matt, he spoke at Fall Conference last year. And uh, I told Matt what had happened, and without hesitation, he said, okay, I'll see you in five minutes. And you have to understand that at that time, like Matt was already married. He had a wife, he had a house, he had things to do. But he came over immediately. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. I mean, and so what did Matt and I do? He comes over. We didn't do much. Uh, we sat on the couch and didn't talk a whole lot. We watched a couple quarters of an NBA game. Matt's LeBron guys, probably LeBron game. And then I went to my room and went to bed, and he slept on the couch. I was in the wilderness, and Matt was very much with me. And I really do hope and pray that, that all of you will find even one friend like this in college. But I want you to know tonight that in Jesus, you actually have a friend already who is even better than this. Because Matt is a really good friend. But the difference between someone like Matt or, or Princess Diana, who we mentioned earlier, versus Jesus the King is that while people like Matt can, can move towards us in our sin and suffering and identify with us and comfort us and even be with us in our sin and suffering, the king can actually conquer these things and end them. Only the king can end them. And the good news of Christianity is that he already has. That by coming to earth, and living the life that we could not live, and then dying the death we deserved, and going into a tomb, into the wilderness, but then rising again on the third day, Jesus has ended it all. 
He has ended your sin. He has ended your suffering. And eventually, he will end them completely when he comes again. Let's close. So a few years ago, there was a girl who, who called herself Nightbird, and she wrote a, a post on the internet. And, and I've read some of those posts to you before, but it's one of the best things I've ever read. So I'm just going to keep reading it to you. So there's this girl named Nightbird. She writes a post on the internet, and here's what the post is called. It is called, God is on the bathroom floor. God is on the bathroom floor. Nightbird, when she writes it, uh, she's just over 30 years old, and she has already had cancer three times. And in this post, she, she recalls all the nights she has spent on the bathroom floor vomiting and throwing up from all the chemotherapy and just all the pain. But as she stays up all of these nights, she says that lying on the bathroom floor, she, she would look up to the heavens and she would shake her fists and she would curse at God and ask her why God could allow this and why God could, ask her, could, could allow her to die. But in those moments, looking up and cursing God, she actually realizes something. She, she realizes that she is looking in the wrong direction. She realizes that God is actually down on the floor with her. And here's what she writes. She says, I have seen God in rare form. I have felt his exhale. I have laid in his shadow. And I've squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. And then she writes, even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go and lay on the bathroom mat in the afternoon light just to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it is true. If you cannot see him or find him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Friends, we can't imagine a God and a king who would be like this. But if you want to find the king, you know where to find him. He is in wilderness places. He is in dark and lonely and sad places. And he's on the bathroom floor. I mean, the guy who's on the floor of the fraternity house passed out drunk. The king is with him. He is on the floor with a girl when she finds out she's pregnant. He is with the freshman who is homesick and just wants to go home. I mean, he is with you when your parents called you to tell you that they were getting divorced. Uh, he was with you when your best friend betrayed you. We have a king who moves toward us, especially when we cannot move towards him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage where we see that you are a king who comes low, who comes down from heaven, from God to us. Father, I pray that you would make RUF a community that truly believes this, and that we too might head out into dark and desolate wilderness places and be with others in their sin and suffering as well. Uh, if we're going to do these things, we're going to need a lot of help. We're going to need your grace and your Holy Spirit. So send them, we pray. Amen.